Good morning. Good to see you. I, uh, Aaron and I were laughing because the last service, I didn't. I forgot the greeting time. We weren't going to do the handshake time. And so I had to sprint. Uh, right when they got done, I was in the back. And um, the speed, I mean, I, I, somebody got whiplash on this side. I just, wow, look at Pastor Paul go. No, it's actually not very impressive. And then I leaped on the stage, slid head first. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to stand stationary because my hip has been dislocated. So I'm going to preach from, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but so this is a lot easier introduction into uh, our time together. Well, I want to I wanna tell you, uh, there's a rumor. Ooh, can we do that? Ooh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's serious. Uh, there's a rumor going around, uh, an accusation that's been leveled against me. Ooh, it's a joke, okay? I know some of you are like, oh, no. It's fine. It's fine. So let me tell you what it is. So according to my teenager and my preteen, I have four kids. Two of them are teenagers and two of them are, one's a preteen, one's one's a teenager. Couldn't get that out for some reason. Uh, They've made the accusation that I am not a cool dad. Ooh, I sat. Thank you, right? Yeah. So we are fostering them out. Uh, if you know, I'm just kidding. Uh, that's what this announcement is. No, right? Every dad, I think parent, like we want to be cool. We want to be hip. I, I, I just, this became uh, abundantly clear to me. My, my daughter went on this kind of like shopping date with some of uh, her friends. And so uh, the mom of, of one of the girls came in the car, you know, and they drove to pick up my daughter. And, and so uh, I, I'm doing something, uh, playing with the dogs or doing something. And then, and then my daughter says, oh, my friends are here. And I'm like, oh, do you want me to go out? And say, you're like, you know, like, don't finish that sentence. Do you want me to go out and say hi to your friends? She's like, no. And I was like, well, now I'm definitely going, you know, hey, you know. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's not fun uh, to not be cool, right? It's not fun when you're not hip. Not that my kids would use that language. They would look at me like, what do you mean hip? Like this hip? Um, Right? We want to connect. We want to be relevant. Right? That, that's important. I think we, we want to be that. Now, there's another accusation. that My kids have not said this yet. Uh, but there's another accusation that hurts a lot more. Not being hip. Yeah, that kind of hurts. But being called a hypocrite. Yes, I would definitely foster those kids out. Uh, right? But that's the dynamic when your kids would say something like, you know, I can't trust you. Because what you say and what you do don't match. Ooh, now that, that hurts, right? Because not connecting, that's disappointing. Having your character called into question, man, that really hits at the heart, right? That really hurts. Now, this is also true for us as a church and even as individual Christians and followers of Christ. We want to connect. We want to be cool. We want to be hip in some sense, We want to be relevant to our community. We want to show them that we can speak clearly to them the message of Jesus Christ. We want there to be that connection. Now, we're not going to compromise the content of the gospel, but we want to be cool. We want to be relevant. And that's that's okay. That's a good thing. And, and, And we miss out on opportunities to do ministry when we don't make that connection, when we're not relevant. Now, there's something much bigger, a much bigger loss. And that's when... We may not be the hip church, right? But that's when we're the hypocritical church. Ooh, that's a whole nother level, right? To not, to not really have integrity, to say one thing and do uh, 
another thing. Well, that's really damaging. I mean, if I had to choose, and we don't have to choose, right? It's not uh, an either or. We don't want to create this kind of false dichotomy. But if I had to choose to be the hip church or, or the not hip church or the hypocritical church, well, I'm choosing the not hip church. I don't want to be the hypocritical church. Now, we don't have to choose. We don't have to choose, but definitely one is more important than the other. Character is more important than, than connecting. And Paul is going to make this point to Timothy, his kind of ministry apprentice at the church of Ephesus. And I think it's very important for us as we are reflecting on Bible reflection, one of the habits that we are going through, one of the seven habits or rhythms that we're going through throughout 2020. And as we think about our Bible reading, our Bible reflecting, we need to think that we need to actually do what this book says. And Paul's going to make that point abundantly clear to Timothy, this young pastor at this church in Ephesus. In fact, you could summarize what Paul's going to say in our big idea for today. And this isn't new or novel. It's not, you're not going to think, wow, I've never heard that phrase before. But this is the big idea for today. It's this, practice what you preach. Practice what you preach. Now, you've probably heard that before. You've probably heard it used in a negative way, like with the phrase, you don't practice what you preach. Right? That's the accusation of being a hypocrite. Well, Paul is going to instruct Timothy, you need to preach. You need to preach the Bible. You need to preach with authority. You need to preach God's word. And you need to practice what you preach. And then Paul's really going to ramp it up at the end of our paragraph that we're going to cover today. Paul's going to say, here's what's at stake if you don't practice what you preach. What's at stake is eternal consequence. We could actually add to this, practice what you preach or you may perish. That's how serious Paul takes practicing the Christian faith or obedience in the Christian faith. So let me show you this, because this is something that we need to consider very heavily, very seriously, because if we don't practice what we preach, we too could be in jeopardy of eternal consequence, right? Let me show you this. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 11, verse 11. And what we're going to see throughout this passage, this paragraph, is we're going to see Paul hit on these two ideas, practice and preach, practice and preach. He's going to tell Timothy, practice, be of good behavior, have good conduct, do these things. And he's also going to say, and I want you to preach. And you're going to see it back and forth. Now, in the first section, we're going to see practice and preach right there. I want to focus, though, on the practice part, because there's a little more emphasis paid to that in the first two verses. So let's look at the first two verses Really, we're going to get back to verse 11 later, but focus on verse 12. But let's, let's read verse 11 just so we're walking through it chronologically. Verse 11 says this, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believer an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Now, Paul references that Timothy is young. Let no one look down on you because you are young. Now, what we don't want to do is read into that idea of young with our understanding of teenager. Right? That's not probably what's accurate for, for Timothy's age. Timothy is probably in his 30s, maybe later 20s from what we know. So he's still on the younger end. Now, for us, as in the ancient world, in the modern era and in the ancient world, Youth, or those that kind of the, 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 the younger end of the spectrum, are often seen as those who are um, 
morally rebellious, right? Or they're, they're exploring. They're in a season of exploration. They're trying things. And this is often a time where they show moral immaturity, right? This is a time where we kind of are knuckleheads and we do things we shouldn't do. Maybe if you're older than 20 or 30 and you look back, you're like, yeah, that's pretty accurate. Now, if you're in your 20s and 30s or maybe you're a teenager, you're, you're thinking to yourself, oh, these older people. Right? They're always looking down on me, and judging me. That's true. Now, let's just be honest. Let's put it out. Then that's going to happen. When you get older, guess what you're going to do? You're going to judge the younger generation too. You're going to say phrases like this. Oh, kids these days. We've been saying that forever. Right? Back even in the King James. Thou shalt consider the youth of our day. That's how they said it back then. That wasn't very good. I won't use that joke again. But the point of what I'm saying is every cycle, we just do it. There's just a cycle of judgment where kind of those that are older will look at the younger and kind of look at them and say, you're knuckleheads. Like, what are you doing? And, and Paul knows this dynamic, and it makes sense because Timothy is younger than Paul. Paul founded this church. Paul is a dynamic leader. I mean, he's an apostle, so God is using him to write New Testament scriptures. Pretty significant. Paul is a, a dynamic leader. He's the primary church planner in the first century world, really First century Christianity exploded in many regions because of Paul's leadership. So imagine taking over for that guy. Like you're the guy that's got to follow that guy. And so you come in as the younger guy. People, it would make sense, would hesitate about your spiritual maturity. They would think, uh, I don't know about this guy. Now, if you're older, put yourself back into your younger shoes. And if you're younger, stay in those shoes. How do you feel when people critique you? Or assume that you're immature. How does it make you feel? Warm and fuzzy inside? No, you want to rebel. Like all those old people, they're just behind the times. You know, get with it. That's not cool. We don't do that anymore. There's that rebellion. There's that protest. Don't judge me. What does Paul tell Timothy to do? He doesn't say, you know what? Whine about it. Timothy, if they don't respect you, whine about it. Timothy, if they don't respect you, complain about it. Timothy, if they don't respect you, protest about it. What does he say? Now, I get it. Like, that's me too, right? If somebody looks down on me because I'm young, okay, yeah, I feel like, wow, that's not very nice. But Paul tells Timothy, take action. Don't be reactive, be proactive. What does he tell him to do? You set the example, verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth. How? Because you'll argue with them? No. Here's how you set the example. Or here's how you react to them finding you kind of being uh, morally immature. You set the example. In what? In your private life and in your public life. Like these kind of five categories. In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Right? Just look at the list of those things. Are those the things that are exemplary in your youth? No. Speech. Like, I'm just getting out of 30. And I'll tell you right now, that one grabs me like all the time. I always say something that seems to be offending at least somebody in the room, which is great because I speak for a living. <laughs> so think about that. Like, yeah, that's not the behavior that is normally at a high level of maturity in your youth. But Timothy, here's what I want you to do. Paul is saying, I want you to be different than your peers, and I want you to exceed the expectations of those that are older than you. 
Timothy, don't, don't get mad about it. Don't protest it that they don't trust you yet. Timothy, just set the example. This is the beauty of Christian ethics. And we could zoom out and see the Christian ethics is always proactive. You step first. You go first. We see this in the teachings of Jesus when he talks about the issue of an offense and forgiveness needing to happen. Jesus, in both occasions, whether we are the one offended or we are the one who's done the offense, Jesus tells us we need to go and make it right. We always take the first step. So we don't wait. We don't say, well, I don't know if I hurt them. I'll wait till they come to me and bring the offense and then I'll apologize. Nope, it's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, if you know your brother has an offense against you, you leave your sacrifice at the altar and you go and you make that right. You initiate. The same thing. If you've offended somebody, you go. And if they offended you, you go. Either way, either posture you find yourself in, you don't say to yourself, well, I don't know if what I said really hurt their feelings. You go and you, to them and you say, you know, I think what I said could have hurt you. And I'm responsible for the emotional wake of my words. And, and I would like to hear if I hurt your feelings. I believe that I did, but I want to know the depth that I did. So can you, can you kind of plumb the depth of the offense here? Can you help me see how I've hurt? Because I don't want to hurt you. That wasn't my intention, but I believe I did that. And I'm here to apologize. And I'm here to listen to how that hurt your feelings. That's Christian initiative. On the other side too, we go to somebody and we say, you know, when you said this phrase, that hurt me. And I don't think you intended to hurt me. And I want to tell you why that word kind of hits me. I want to share with you my story and, and show you how that word can really just really mean a lot to me. I want to show you the wake of that word for me. And I want you to know that I, I'm here to forgive you. If you realize that, okay, you made a, a misstep there, I want you to know that I, I love you, I care about you, and I want our relationship to be good. See, that's Christian ethics. Always taking the first step. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. Timothy, don't complain, don't whine, don't protest, set the example. Do you see how that's the only thing that actually breaks the cycle of bad behavior and breaks the cycle of prejudice and breaks the cycle of bad assumptions and presuppositions? Because what happens is the younger will become the older and the, then they'll judge the younger. And then that younger will become older and then that older will judge the younger. And it just kind of keeps going. The only way we can stop that is if somebody just says, no. I'm setting the example. I'm doing the right thing. And Paul is putting the onus on Timothy. Timothy, you lead out in this. Be an example. Don't complain that you haven't won their trust yet. Just win their trust. Now we hear that and we may think, is he asking Timothy to be timid? Right? Is he asking Timothy not to in any way ever be abrasive? No. He wants them, hey, practice these things, but preach. And when you preach, preach. Give them commands to obey. You see the interesting balance there? Earn their trust. Be a good practice. Practice what you preach. But when you preach, preach. All right, let me show you this in the next couple of verses. And we'll see this, how Paul is not requesting Timothy to be timid. He wants him to preach and to preach with authority. Look at verse 13. 
until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy with the council of elders laid their hands on you. Timothy, preach, preach. At the center of your preaching should be what? He says, I want you to read the pub, or read publicly the scriptures. Now, this word, this kind of phrase in verse 13 is talking about kind of the practice that we see in the synagogue of the Jews. So as in their practice, and we see these actually these same Greek words, we see them in Acts chapter 13. And what would happen is somebody would read from the Old Testament, and one of the leaders would actually explain the principles that were being communicated in that passage and tell people, here's how you should obey this. So Paul is telling Timothy, I want you to mirror this action. I want you to read from the scriptures, and then I want you to exhort people to obey it. This is why it is central to our church that we preach this book, because we are commanded by this book to preach this book. So that's why it's at the center of our services and the center of our small groups, really the center of everything we do, is the scriptures. Now, the public reading of scripture was vitally important for the spiritual growth of those in the first century world. The first reason was because many of them didn't have access to the scriptures. Like what we have right here, that you have access to the entire Bible, is actually something that's somewhat new when it comes to the history of God's people. Because they didn't have access to all of these books. Like, we have access to all these books and physical copies, and then on our phones, like, one click, and we get the whole scriptures. That is unique. That is somewhat novel when it comes to the history of God's people. I think we underestimate, or we don't appreciate, how much, how much treasure we have in this book right here. We don't have to wait for somebody who's got a scroll. We could just have it right there and scroll it on our phone. Now, many in the ancient world, too, were illiterate. So even if they had access to the scriptures, they couldn't read them. So public reading of scripture was very important. Now, look at the posture. I think this is important for us to realize. The posture of this preaching. Read the scriptures and exhort. Go back to verse 11, because I think this is important. Again, I answer that question, is Paul asking Timothy to be timid? Set a good example. Don't ruffle people's feathers when it comes to their perception of you. Just set the example. But that doesn't mean that, that Timothy, Timothy shouldn't ruffle some feathers. Look at verse 11. It says, command and teach these things. What does that mean? It means exactly what the word command means in the English language. It's exactly what you think it means. It's one of authority. Timothy, tell them what to do. Now, not because of who Timothy is, but because of what this book is. These are the commands of God. Timothy, when you read this, explain it to them and tell them, obey this. When Timothy was preaching, his audience was to sense, have a sense of obligation upon them. This is a wonderful way to evaluate your church experience. Right, if you're like looking for a church or maybe you're new to Christianity or, or maybe you're just trying to find a new church home, let me help you out with probably the best test of a healthy church. Do you feel challenged when you get there? If you leave the room and you don't feel challenged, don't go back in that room. Because that's not the point of the preaching. The preaching is to challenge us. We should feel a sense of obligation that God is commanding us to do something. You're not commanded by Paul. You're commanded by God to do these things. 
the center of every healthy church is preaching for obedience. You could almost add it this way, that, that Timothy was to practice what he preached and then preach for practice. Because Jesus wasn't about just informing us of things, but rather transforming our behaviors. And look at the stakes that now Paul is going to put forward to Timothy. Timothy, if you don't do this, Timothy, if you don't practice what you preach, if your behavior doesn't match what you're teaching, here's what's at stake. In fact, Timothy, if you don't preach for practice, if you don't instruct them to obey God's word, here's what's at stake for them. And let me tell you, the stakes are incredibly high. They couldn't be higher. Now, it is tempting when we get to hard passages to try to soften them a little bit. And I'll be honest, I do that too. There are times where I'll read through a passage and I'll think, ooh, I don't like that. I bet it means this, which is usually wrong. Usually try to soften it, I'm usually wrong. But there are times I read the Bible, I'm like, man, if God gave me the pen and said, Paul, you write this, I probably wouldn't write it like that. But I'm not the boss. My job is to follow the boss. And a lot of the stuff he says, man, it's challenging and it's good for me. This is one of those moments when we get to a passage and we may try to soften the blow a little bit, kind of lower the stakes of what's at risk. Let me show you this. Timothy, if you don't practice what you preach and you don't preach for practice, here's what's in danger. Verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that they may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this. Do you feel the weight of what Paul is doing? Like each verse, each verb, each command is just like more and more and more and more serious. Right? He starts in verse 15 and says, practice, then immerse, then keep, and then persist. It's almost like Paul is reaching out from this letter, kind of grabbing his cheeks and saying, listen to me, Timothy. That's how my parents and grandparents had to talk to me, right? You got to slow me down. Just grab my cheeks, Paul, yes, <laughs> which is why I don't think I remember much of what they told me. That's, that, that's, a, that's another parenting practice to evaluate later, right? But this is what Timothy was probably experiencing from his teacher, from Paul. I want you to focus, Timothy. Focus, focus, focus. This is so important. Practice what you preach and preach for practice. Why? Because if you don't, Timothy, you may not make it. You may perish and your people may perish. Like, look at how he closes off this sentence. Keep a close watch. I'm in verse 16. On yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this. Why? For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, here's how we try to soften this, or we could be tempted to. Maybe you don't, but we could be tempted to. We take that word save. Oh, maybe what it means is like, okay, teach these things, practice these things, because you want to save people from thinking something false. Save them from ignorance. Save them from misinformation. And so in our modern-day vocabulary, we can use the word save like that. Oh, you saved me from air. Oh, you saved me uh, on my taxes, right? You saved me on a deduction. We can use that kind of vocabulary. That's not how Paul uses that term. In fact, every time he uses that Greek word with Timothy, he's talking about one thing. 
He's talking about being saved from our sins and being reunited in a right relationship with God. He's talking about heaven here. That's what he's talking about. So what Paul is saying, Timothy, if you don't practice what you preach, you may perish and suffer eternal consequence. In fact, if you don't practice what you preach and you don't preach for practice, then your people could perish too. Now, in order to understand this, we, we need to kind of zoom out a little bit and understand what the Bible talks about when it speaks on faith. Sometimes our view of faith is a little too, is a little too narrow. So the scriptures, when it's talking about faith, talks about a moment. So think of like a point in time. There's a moment, and we call them here at sunrise, the ABCs of Christianity. We admit that we're a sinner. We believe that Christ died and rose again for the forgiveness of our sins. And we confess him as the Lord of our life, the ABCs. Admit, believe, confess. We didn't make that up here. We just love that. It's simple. It's easy. A a child could repeat it. There's that moment where we do the ABCs. We admit, believe, and confess. And that moment is what the Bible talks about when it talks about faith. But that's not the only way it talks about faith. The Bible actually zooms out and says that faith is not just a moment, it's a marathon. Like that moment starts a journey, a journey of transformation, a journey where you are changed from the inside out, a journey where fruit starts to grow in you, behaviors start to change in you, virtues start to come out of you, appetites in you start to change. And the scriptures talk about we have to have both. There's the marathon of faith and the moment of faith. And if the marathon of faith is not there, that means the moment was never true. Jesus uses this kind of language when he's talking about the parable of the soils. I believe that's in Matthew chapter 13. And there he talks about there's a moment where it looks like, boom, this thing grew. And like, ooh, there's a moment of faith. And then Jesus says it withers and dies. What does that mean? It didn't do the marathon. So true faith is one that starts true transformation. The moment of faith is the beginning of the marathon of faith. And that marathon is not about perfection. It's about holding on to that confession and letting that confession transform our behaviors. This is what Paul is telling Timothy. In verse 16, I think he's talking about that marathon of faith. He's saying, Timothy, if you don't practice what you preach, if you don't set the example in speech, in, in, in life, in conduct, in, and in purity, if you don't do those things, Timothy, you're going to prove that your faith was never really true because you failed in the marathon of faith. You didn't finish the race of faith, which means you never really started it in a genuine way. And Timothy, if you preach and your people love that you preach something that's not about Christian practice, then they, too, will fall in the marathon of faith and prove that they never truly had faith. True faith is not hypocritical, and true faith does not hunger for heresy. True faith wants preaching that's for practice. True faith doesn't say, entertain me, or as the scriptures say, tickles my ear. True faith says, I want to hunger and follow for Jesus. So preach the word to me. Let me show you how Paul wasn't just being hard on Timothy. This is a perspective Paul had of himself and his own ministry. 
Look at this. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. Look at how Paul uses the same kind of idea on himself. He knows he needs to practice what he preaches. And if he doesn't practice what he preaches, he'll perish. He'll show himself to be untrue. Look at this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. Paul says, I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Now, Paul's not talking about doing burpees or push-ups or jumping jacks or anything like that. Okay? He's not a part of Sunrise Boxing Team. Although if he was, was, he'd probably be pretty fierce. I just feel that from Paul. What he's saying here is, talking about his moral behavior. I need to pursue living a moral and virtuous life. I need to practice what I preach. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control. At least after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What's Paul saying? If I don't practice what I preach, I may perish. Because true faith is not hypocritical. It's not perfect. We don't want to hear that. It's not perfect. But it is pursuing obedience, persisting in obedience. Let me show you how this was the aim of Jesus as well. I'm going to put a passage on scripture, okay? And, I, and, I, and I've intentionally taken something out. It's a very familiar scripture. And if you're reading the sermon notes, stop. Flip them over because that would be cheating. You're like, oh, man. I'm talking about you, Glenn. <laughs> When I was running through this sermon in my head, you're the first person I thought of. I just want you to know that. I love you, brother. You're awesome. And you read ahead and you get so much out of the, the message, I'm sure. I love you. Um, so don't, don't read ahead. Everybody and Glenn. Okay. I'm going to put a passage on Scripture. Now, this is a very known passage. We call this the Great Commission. If you are just starting to follow Jesus, this is a perfect passage for you to memorize. We often go back to this a lot because this is Jesus' kind of marching orders for the church. Everybody should be focused on this mission. It's why we call it the Great Commission. You've been a Christian for a while. You're probably familiar with this. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to find the words I took out. Okay? So let me just read it to you. See if you can catch it. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them all all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. To obey. obey. Very nice. All right. Did Glenn tell you that? No. You knew. Of course you knew. What I took out is right there. You referenced that as obey. That's how I memorized it, okay? In the ESV, it translates it to observe. It should read teaching them to observe or to obey all that I have commanded you. Do you see the difference there? Jesus is not about giving you just information. Jesus is about causing transformation. He wants you to learn all of this so you obey it. I'll give you an example. I was... um, I just finished this book, big book, like 400-page book uh, on, on endurance athletes and ultra runners. These are people who run like over a marathon. I know you're like, there are people who do that? Yeah, they are. They're weird, okay? And so I was reading this book, well, because I'm weird, because I, I wanted to run longer distances. I wanted to run longer without dying, and that was a challenge for me. And so I started reading this book, and this is thorough treatment 
of endurance athletes in ultra running. He talked about pain management, talked about muscle fatigue. He talked about heat exhaustion. He talked about uh, a lack of oxygen. He talked about fuel, like food. He talked about thirst, like getting enough liquid in you, all of these things. Now imagine, I finished that 400 and something page book and I decide, here I go, I'm gonna jump on a 40 mile trail. But I'm not gonna do anything that author said. I'm gonna take zero of his advice. What's going to happen? You're going to be looking for a new lead pastor because I'm going to be dead at like mile 20, just on the trail, over. Right? Reading about running is not going to make me a better runner. Having better running habits is going to make me a better runner. Reading this is not going to make you a better Christian. It's not going to make you a better follower of Jesus. Reflecting on it and obeying it will do that. Reading's a part of that, but it can't end there. And I think oftentimes we set goals that kind of run contrary to that, or maybe at least incomplete to that. We set our Bible reading goals. I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. That's good. Don't hear me tell you don't read the Bible. Don't hear that. But our goals are really that. Get, I have a goal for the information I'm going to get. But Jesus is aiming at what? Practice. Obedience. Not just knowledge. He wants you to obey it. So I want to do a little change. Slight augmentation to your Bible reading goals. Make obedience goals. Here's what I mean by that. We talked about, just a couple weeks ago, we talked about reading at least three passages throughout the week. We thought that's an easy, sizable goal for everybody to be able to finish. No matter what life throws at you, you'll probably get into God's word three times throughout a week. If you do more, great. Glenn is in the Bible 52 times in one week. It's incredible. He's in it right now. He's like, the sermon's boring me. I'm just going to go to the book. But three times, if you get into a passage, imagine you read that passage, you picked one verse out of there and you said, okay, we talked about praying that verse. What if you made a specific point of obedience for that verse? And I mean specific. Not like you read 1 Corinthians 13, you read about love and you say to yourself, oh, I'm going to be more loving this week. No, that's not going to work. Because if I were to go and ask you, like, well, how'd you do, Glenn? Were you more loving this week? Yeah. Okay, let me ask your wife. I'm talking getting really specific. Like something like this. Like you read 1 Corinthians 13, you read about love, being patient, about being kind, not thinking of itself, not insisting on itself, right? Forgiving things. Okay, you read that passage and you say, okay, here's what I'm going to do this week. I'm going I'm to pray one time in the morning and one time at night for that person in my past who hurt me who I still have a trouble forgiving and loving. That's what I'm going to pray for. Now that's specific. I could go to you and say, did you, did you obey that? And that's easy for you to say, yes, I did. I prayed in the morning and I prayed at night for that one person who hurt me in my past, who I have a really hard time loving. Imagine if you did that three times a week. If you started that today, that would be like 
Okay, I don't know the math. It'd be 140 plus points of obedience that you would have committed to in 2024. 140 plus. What would that look like? Like reading the Bible in a year? Awesome. If I had to choose, I'm picking the obedience over the chapter goal. Now, you don't have to choose. But if we're aiming at obedience, we're aiming to put into practice, where should our goals be set? I think set at obedience. Now, multiply that. Imagine if the hundreds of people who come to Sunrise Church committed to getting in the Bible three times a week and then made a specific point of obedience for those passages that they read. We're talking hundreds of thousands of specific points of obedience. What would that do to our community? What would that do to our city? That's when I think we are shining like like a, a city on a hill. And we bring forth light that people look and they glorify our Father who's in heaven. That's what I think Jesus is talking about. That's the transformation he wants. Timothy, practice what you preach. They'll see your progress. They'll start to believe your message. We will become incredibly persuasive when we become committed to obedience. This is what Jesus would have for us. He doesn't want to just inform us. He wants to transform us. And in transforming us, he wants us to be persuasive to those around us, to the legitimacy of our faith. Imagine what God could do. We want to make it really easy for you. We talked about this, and I said this before, that we're kind of following this lecture and lab kind of model. What I mean by that is we're walking through the content of the seven rhythms of Christianity, the seven rhythms, seven habits that you need to grow as a Christian. And every time we do that throughout 2024, we're going to have lectures about it, if you will, and then we're going to have labs. At the end of every month, as we're going through one of the topics, we're going to have a lab or an experience that allows you to put these things into practice. Now, normally what will happen when we go through those rhythms is that lab will be announced to you at the beginning of the month. We didn't do that this month. It's a little different. And you don't need much runtime, so that's why. We have designed a really cool tool to help you. So you have everything you need, and there's no excuse not to jump on board into diving into God's word three times a week and actually obeying it. Gunner, one of the guys on our staff, is a great guy. He has put together this tool, and it is phenomenal. We're calling it the Sunrise Trail Guide. And you can tell the kind of theme. We talk about faith as a journey. So this is a trail guide. This is to walk you through the journey of faith, to walk alongside you in the marathon of faith. And what you're going to see in this trail guide is you're going to see sermon notes will be there. The sermon will be there, yes. But before you get to that, will be Three passages that you can walk through, that you can reflect on, and life-level application questions for you to take part in. It is so easy for you to get this. It's an email, an email, a weekly email that comes. You can go to our website. It's right there on the front page. Sign up for Trail Guide. Or if you have the Church Center app, it's the first thing that comes when, you, when it pops up on your phone. It'll show this blue little thing. It says sign up for the Trail Guide. We want to make it so easy for you to put this in to practice, for you to practice what you preach. So I hope you sign up for this, whether through Church Center, you download that app, 
you go to Sunrise, you'll see it right there on our Sunrise uh, uh, homepage there, or you'll see it on our website. Imagine what your Christian life would look like if you made 140 points to obey in the year. Wow. And imagine if everybody in the church did that. Remarkable. Outstanding. It would be incredible to see. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh God, I, I thank you that we are not left alone just to wander about life, trying to figure out what your will is, trying to figure out what you want for us. No, you've given us your word. You've put it right there before us, and you say, follow this. Lord, we commit as a church to be committed to this book, to be committed to your word. Father, I pray that we never remove this book from the center of all of our practices, that we would revere your word, we would thank you for it, and we put it into practice. Holy Spirit, I pray you continue to transform us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would lead us to, to the discipline and the delight of consuming the words that you inspired. And we let those words transform us. And it would be more about how we obeyed what we read than how much we read. Father, I, th I think you would be more pleased if we read only three small sentences but obeyed them than if we read 30 chapters and did nothing with them. Holy Spirit, would you just help us reprioritize some things? And put Bible reflection right at the top of what we do as a family. It's what we do as followers. And Father, I can't wait to see what that looks like. How persuasive to our community. What would the connection look like to those around us when we obey your word and put it into practice? It's Christ's name I pray. Amen.